So I want to talk about an idea that I had this afternoon whilst I was sitting writing called The Cholesterol City. And I was watching a film recently, I can't remember what it was called, I think What the Health. Uh, I'm doing this vegan January thing at the moment, so I'm going for like a detox and my entire body's beginning to feel energised and robust and I'm living a karma-free eating pattern which kind of leaves me feeling uh, wholesome and connected to the earthly balances of the environment, which is all very wonderful. And it got me thinking about like our bodily systems and cholesterol and how we consume, how our habitual dietary um, activities end up causing us detrimental effects in our bodies. And in the same way as that we consume um, and we consume unhealthy products or we consume animals that have been reared in industrialized meat um, productions where they are kind of, they're essentially tortured throughout their life. And then we end up eating all of the crap, the emotional crap and the stress and the anxiety of these creatures and you know, whatever um, biochemistry happens, we end up ingesting that and, you know, there's a lot of these studies to show that, that eating meat really isn't that great for you and clogs up the arteries. And if we look at our, our cities in the same way, that our cities are built up of the same sort of habitual human forces. And where we've been neglectful or perhaps ignorant to the way of our city construction, we have a similar sort of congestion. And if we speculate about, um, how do I say this? If we look at how our architecture has been dominated by viewing buildings primarily and solely as financial instruments, which is like, it's a necessity. Buildings are financial instruments. I'm not going to say that they're not, but they're also uh, a lot of other things. They're places to think, they're places to nurture, to heal, to care. They are um, places that build communities, they're political spaces, they're performance spaces, they're, and all of these kind of soft qualities actually have financial qualities imbued in them. And there's like an illusion that the financial conversation is somewhat separate from all of these other softer qualities, which are much more difficult to define in terms of, of value, um, or quantify speculatively anyway, right? Um, and there's a kind of consciousness that's needed to see the inherent value of these other soft qualities of architecture. And, and as a way of consuming the built environment, when we constantly look for the quick win of finance, um, it causes cities which are, have got cholesterol. It causes cities where you've got like housing shortages. You've got, you know, cities where um, you've got these buildings which are providing warmth and shelter to empty beds and computers and cell phones. And yet there are parts of the city which are totally neglected and uh, starving almost from housing. People not able to get adequate homes and shelter good evening so I'm gonna talk about thinking in scales and I think uh, as an architect you know you're trained to look at a problem from varying scales and thinking in scales I think is one of the most powerful um, human achievements 
um, to be able to kind of look at something at a minuscule scale and then imagine it at a larger scale. It's a very, very powerful way of analyzing, of observing, of interacting, of designing and of thinking. And a beautiful example of this is the film Powers of Ten by the Eames office, which was made back in the 60s. And you will have seen hundreds of spin-offs and imitations of that video um, occurring all on the internet, and they become kind of internet, internet memes. And basically, the original uh, Powers of Ten started off with a one meter by one meter square looking at a couple sitting in Central Park. And then it zoomed out every second by a power of ten. And in the process you zoomed out from this human scale to a kind of more architectural building scale to the scale of the city you could see all of Manhattan um, correct me if I was wrong if it wasn't Manhattan or it was Chicago I'm sure someone will correct me um, you know but you're, you're zooming out from the city scale to the country scale to the like to the scale of landmass to the scale of the planet earth then to the scale of the you know the earth and moon system then you're zooming back and you can see the scale of the entire solar system and so on and so on till we're right to the edges of the observable universe which is kind of you know over 15 billion light years in size then the film starts to zoom in by powers of 10 and we end up uh, zooming fast forwarding right back to the human scale and then we start going into the cellular scale we start looking at the scale of DNA then we start going into the sort of subatomic particles and atoms and looking at you know where our knowledge kind of condenses to whatever the smallest things the smallest divisible units of life are at that time and it's a beautiful film and you kind of see all of existence as operating like a kind of fractal pattern where various formations and geometries repeat themselves at different scales. You might see in the iris of the human eye um, like a landscape that looks like uh, a mountain formation or it looks like the vol a volcano. You know, you see that kind of shapes, that kind of way that structure, that existence, reality, matter forms itself, has certain patterns that are repetitive. This is the power of architecture. This is training yourself to find the connections in all things. This is a very powerful human practice that can lead to new conversations, new insights, new relationships, affinity, closeness, love. Um, it's a very fulfilling activity to do in and of itself, is to look for the connections and to think through and in scales. I want to talk about transformed city. What is a transformed city? So rather than it just being a city which is physically transformed and altered, that will be uh, an impact of it, but I'm talking about transformation in the psychological sense, the word transformation or transformative learning which you may have come across in Buddhist literature or ancient esoteric texts or in personal development or in modern day leadership um, speech and talk about this idea of us being able to transform our psychology, transform the paradigm within which we're operating in. 
and a transformed city would be a city that provides spaces, architecture, buildings, location um, and place for transformed inhabitants, people who have, who, who are transformed in that sense. Now all human beings possess this quality of being able to relinquish whatever fixed view of reality that they may have. It's one of these, you know, tools of the human mind that we've, you know, no one's ever really shown us how to use properly. And as we grow older, we, as I was talking about yesterday about living unconsciously, we end up absorbing and taking on other modes, other paradigms, other ways of looking at the world which are not necessarily ours, they're just societal structures that we get born into and they have a lot of use and they're very, you know, they, they're very important um, but they also end up becoming quite constraining and we end up taking on ideas, ideologies that we've picked up, inherited and we don't test them out, we don't kind of um, uh, question them and they end up becoming large constraints in our life. I love the analogy of a story that somebody was telling about how their mum used to cook meatloaf and when she cooked meatloaf she always used to cut the two ends off of it and uh, one day the, the, the kid asks or the son asks mum why do you cut the two ends off and she was like uh I don't know actually, we've always done it that way. Ask um, ask my mother. So he asks his grandmother, Granny, why do we cut these two ends off of the meatloaf? And she was like, oh, well that's because when we were cooking it, um, we the oven wasn't big enough so I had to cut it down to, that, to this size and to fit it into the oven. And it was very interesting because obviously that constraint, that physical constraint no longer existed but yet the practice carried on and you can see that kind of thing that cultural accumulation of ideas of practices and of place making of cities and also in our own psychology that occurs so being able to relinquish that and having the tools to be able to examine your own internal mechanisms this is somebody who is leading a life that of transformation and when we throw architecture into the mix of this and also once you've had uh, like a personal experience of transformation relinquishing of you know a kind of a, a state of suffering or whatever a sort of you know you're in the circumstances which appear very physically constraining um, and you have a massive transformational shift in your paradigm and then you start producing new results with the knowledge that you already have that you've been using and you've accumulated throughout your lifetime but suddenly something shifts and it's very dramatic and it can happen and it's very often life-changing and when we start talking about architecture being born out of that it becomes very exciting because we can start to see a city that is designed to hold us accountable to always examining the internal states I want us to see architecture not merely as static inert objects which are passively inhabited but rather as human beings architecture exists primarily in the conversation that we have around building architecture and our built environment exists in the interactions that we have with it the interactions through our activity our routines the way we live our lives 
as well as the perceptual conversations that we have that lead us to have judgments about architecture, how architecture emotively um, impacts us, how architecture facilitates different modes of consciousness, how architecture facilitates and sort of stands for different values and ideologies. That is, you know, architecture isn't this static, dead lump of bricks which you just kind of walk into. However, as I've been saying, like this, you know, this, this, this idea of two ways of living, unconsciously or consciously, um, we do tend to live our life unconsciously. Um, and therefore our architecture becomes unconscious. So we're not aware of its life. We're not aware of its impact. We fail to use it for anything with very much meaning. It just becomes dead spaces. Um, energy of the city ends up, you know, either going stagnant in it. It creates places of social disease. It creates uninhabitable places. It creates poverty. It creates all sorts of tensions. Cities are not tools for enlightenment or furthering, you know, a kind of new conversation about what it is to be a human being or that our cities are not, you know, they're not just making us better people, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And that really is the purpose of architecture. But yeah, architecture is often designed in abstraction. It's designed um, with little bearing to, you know, all the different participants in it, you know. Um, and often the seed of an idea for architecture in terms of, like, you know, the client, why they want to build something, is less than inspiring. There isn't really a value. There isn't, you know, I'm not saying this is this is the case all over the place, but for a vast majority of the structures that get built, that human beings live in, there is not much thought in it. You know, we, we're producing monotonous, bland cityscapes and towns that are indistinguishable from each other. And that will only um, perpetuates monotony and unconscious living and life that is, you know, not particularly fulfilling in any kind of way. It's just, it's just bland. It's just ordinary. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not doing anything special. But it's not the architecture is not to blame. It's us. It's our conversations about buildings. It's our conversations about our lives and what it is that we're using our lives for. And that is missing in society as as a whole. We we don't participate in this kind of, you know, setting out a vision for who we are as individuals. We're not participating in conversations about unleashing our latent geniuses from, from early childhood. If you're lucky enough to get involved with any kind of personal development or expansion of the human spirit or any kind of material like that, which is about furthering yourself, that's a, a massive privilege. But many, many of the billions of people who live on this planet do never never get exposed to that kind of education or that kind of material so that's my little thought for the day um, about architecture is a conversation and the quality of that conversation
defines the quality of our architecture and ultimately the quality of our experience of life. Architecture reflects life. I've heard um, lots of architects, I remember Cool Houses chatted about something similar to that, saying that architecture merely reflects the society that it's in and then that can often be a kind of dictum that's hijacked and then utilized as a justification for producing you know shit architecture basically um, but I would suggest that architecture reflects our highest values and as a society and that its purpose its tool its main reason for being is to facilitate enlightenment or facilitate the raising of consciousness to facilitate the evolution of the human being to facilitate the harmonious development of mankind so these are all very nice lofty ideals but what does it actually mean architecture is there for us to go on this personal in inquiry it's a kind of you know I, I, I really think architecture reflects our highest values and when we're living in cities that are bland and monotonous and unimaginative and are producing low levels of inspiration, low goal setting, you're kind of like I was talking about uh, in the earlier post about the two ways of living. You, know, you can either live unconsciously or you can live consciously. It's a choice, right? And the majority of us choose at some point in our lives or for long periods of our lives to live unconsciously. Like we're not taking responsibility. We're not living a life that inspires we're not living in a way that actually you know utilizes our innate genius and kind of we're not even willing to go on to a discovery that we have an innate genius you know we're just living in a world of reasons and circumstances of why we can't do something and that can be a very painful existence and when we're stuck in that way of existing our architecture will reflect that as our value system or lack of value system or just having things like television or the quick fix pleasure items as being what's most important to us and our architecture will reflect that and then we have homogenized cities and societies and streets that are indistinguishable from um, you know you can't tell which part of the country you're in you can't tell which part of the world that you're in um, that is that is something that can that can happen and the way that we can use architecture to facilitate this inquiry the raising of human consciousness all this kind of lovely stuff is that it becomes a tool for really um, bringing about our highest values into whatever activity that we are participating in at the time so architecture really becomes a structure for holding us accountable to the goals and values that we set and without that without having goals and values and having a, a meaningful conversation about them then our architecture can't really reflect anything and what's really interesting is that you can have buildings which were not fit for purpose which were poor in their construction and their quality but with the intention of using them to um, hold us accountable for fulfilling on certain goals and ideas and values you can transform them your usage our usage our activity the discipline the structure 
in our activity around the uses of a building can transform them and elevate them and make them into places which elevate human consciousness. So I'm standing at the foot of the new Blatfanik building, which is the extension to the Tate Modern in London by architects Herzog and de Muron. It's a beautiful kind of like a, a brick weave, essentially, like a brick veil that hangs over this rather strangely contorted mass um, sitting next to some very elegant, um, high modernistic buildings by Richard Rogers. These are kind of uh, uh, very high-end, luxurious residential blocks, which are almost nude and naked in comparison. You know, they're kind of just the raw steel of the structure is exposed. You can see um, almost through the buildings in their transparency, and that kind of sits just in, um, you know, close proximity to the new extension. Anyway, I was in the, I was wandering around, I had a meeting in there, and just uh, went and had a look at some of the artwork, and was kind of intrigued by one of my favourite artists ever, who's a woman called Julie Maretu, who is Ethiopian uh, by birth, but I think she lives in New York now, and she does these incredible large-scale canvases, which are like kind of cartographic fantasies. They're just intricate drawings of architectural, architectural projections of space, like kind of elevation, plan, perspective. You know, you get that sense of kind of being in a 3D drawing, but yet they are perhaps not that cohesive when you look at them you're kind of you know they're so enormous that you kind of you know they, they you, you become immersed inside of them um, and they are they're like kind of experiential paintings and a very interesting portrayal of our cities of our landscapes and they kind of start to point towards how we as human beings are intimately involved in the production of our city and, you know, I was kind of talking earlier about digital nomadacy and you know, this kind of idea of conscious entrepreneurs who, in, you know, and how our, our living habits are informing um, the built environment. You know, we start changing the way that we look and use the city. The city begins to um, actually physically change as a result. It begins to respond. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Here I am in beautiful Romford with the sunshine beaming onto my gorgeous face, enjoying life and about to go off to a personal development seminar where I am coaching there this evening, which will be a lot of fun, a lot of excitement, and I'm very much looking forward to it. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you all today is about embracing your inner nomad. And it's a really interesting concept about this, the innate desire for human beings to want to be moving, to want to be walking, to want to be transient from place to place. And what are the rituals and the ceremonies that we use to create our own spaces? Um, I was talking to someone this morning about the military and how they set up camp and how the usage of signs and flags and insignia are very, very fundamental um, tools in creating that psychological space, the space of stability, a space of a camp. This is ours. Um, which is essential, particularly in very difficult, um, you know, warlike circumstances. Um, 
And I was kind of thinking about this and, you know, my interest in indigenous peoples and how they set up camps and working in the monastery at the moment and the kind of rituals that are involved in creating space. Uh, again, fascinating and the little kind of reminders, the psychological reminders and tools that we use to set up space. So I, I posit that all of us have an inner nomad. Um, and that we have this kind of desire to wander, to take risks, to explore, and this can this often finds itself expressed in lots of different ways. Perhaps you are a traveller. Perhaps you are going to new places. Um, perhaps you you explore your the inner self, the inner journey, or perhaps you're interested in exploring, you know, creating a business, and that's your your journey. Um, so what what I want to know is about is about people's rituals and the, what they do to create those personalized spaces. And I'm in the uh, position at the moment where I was talking yesterday about being a digital nomad and kind of setting up business and people are less attached to their physical spaces. And I've got my own little rituals now where I go up to a new place and I set up my laptop and I have my own little Buddha statue and I kind of create my space. and. I think that's you know that is a, that is something that's that's happening more and more in you know that this generation of entrepreneurs of of people kind of being transient what are the rituals that you use to set up your space your working environments So here I am in the heart of Marden Park Forest in Godstone Surrey it's springtime, beautiful blue sky afternoon. I'm walking uh, my faithful friend Millie the dog, Millie the Shiba Inu, and the bluebells are out. And the effect of bluebells in the forest is magical. It really is like a kind of blue mist that gently seeps across an undulating uh, forest floor and creates the most calming and engulfing sensations that can only nourish your spiritual identity and kind of nurture you and just sort of really kind of um, rejuvenate and energize you. And I'm just sitting here um, thinking about the power of color and something it's, you know, uh, interior designers use color all the time. They're much more versant in, in it than architects are. Architects are a bit useless with color generally, or when they do use it, they use kind of harsh Pantone graphical colors and it's very much about you know the the kind of it's like always like Richard Rogers for example uses color and it's playful and it's fun um, and it's also functional he kind of uses it to decode parts of the building and this is for water this is for um, heating supplies or you know using an airport to decode the spaces which is great it's fine it's very nice and functional but it totally misses out on the real power of color for me anyway which is the sort of emotional and atmospheric and evocative sensations that color can cause and I always am fascinated by monastic living and the Tibetan monks for example have a process of coloring using color in their monasteries um, where they would use a sort of very thin egg tempura uh, kind of paint mix which they would layer up again and again and again maybe hundreds of layers onto a wall or a surface to create a very deep color where 
your eye doesn't rest on the surface of the material that it's been painted on but it has an effect where the color has a depth to it so you, it creates a kind of unsettling effect to your eye which is very um, relaxing it's expansive it's very similar to this sensation i'm having right now sitting in this um in this little enclave of bluebells where it's a mist effect you know your eye isn't able to capture any one thing specifically unless you kind of focus on it but the kind of the whole field of vision the gansfeld is the german word for it you know kind of entire perceptual field is filled with a a color that your body your consciousness your mind expands into and it's a very you know it's a very nourishing nourishing experience it's very natural and you'll see this coming up in some of the tibetan architecture and you know, particular paint uh, artists are able to play with colour. Rothko was very good at using a layering technique to create space within paint. Albert's used um, paint uh, colour like this as well to create the sensation of space. Space. If you look at Homage to the Square, um, that series of paintings, but using it in a very much more sort of graphical uh, sensation where block colour was used and is much more sort of experimental and kind of. Uh, you know, almost measurable ways of how colour causes this sensation of atmosphere space. Obviously, the architects, masters using colour, Louis Barragans, um, his Mexico homes, powerful use of colour to sort of reflect back upon us our spiritual nature and that kind of contemplative power that colour has. Good afternoon. I haven't been live on Anchor for a little while. I've taken a break from social media and I am back in full vengeance today. So you'll be hearing a lot more from me. Um, and I wanted to talk to you today about the metaphors of architecture and how that often you'll hear, you know, great sort of spiritual teachings or you'll hear wise stories often recounted in terms of like buildings or you'll hear like the analogy of being a bridge you know joining communities or the often the one that we hear about a lot is about making a foundations and how you know what is it that we spend most of the time actually building when we construct a building is the foundations and that has a lot of significance in terms of when you're taking on any large task in life when you're building towards any goals that actually the the most amount of work that goes into stuff is often the stuff that you just don't see. You do not see it. Um, I'm dealing with a client at the moment, and we're building a... It's like a, we're just extending a garage, right? It's really, on the surface of it, it's a very simple-looking box to put his car in. Nothing sexy, nothing glamorous. And yet, it's on a very difficult site that's sloping. Um, his house is literally just above the garage as well, so it's kind of... You know, it's almost like we're building a basement. And the client is going to have to spend a hell of a lot of money on reinforcing the existing foundations and putting in new foundations to protect this building. And it's probably the majority of the cost of the project is going into all this work that will never, ever be seen. And it's kind of like we had this conversation. He's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe that I'm about to spend, you know, whatever it is, £30,000 or whatever, um, you know, on basically large lumps of concrete that are going to be buried into the dirt net for no one ever to see. But the reality of it is that that stuff will protect his entire house and keep the whole site rigid and strong and it will be a level of integrity that can be brought 
do that project. And architecture is a very, you know, for people who study it or if you ever do any building work, there is a, a kind of um, a pace to it which can be very, very slow and for a long period of time it feels like nothing's happening. And it's like that, you know, whatever goal that you're doing, if you're, if you're exercising, you're building and you're, you know, you're getting yourself into shape to have six packs or you're building um, a business, there's so much of that work which goes under the ground that you don't get to see until the last moments. So, that's um, my little thought of the day, and you'll hear more from me later on. So here I am, walking down the beautiful steel spiral staircase of the Wellcome Trust, a new addition from Wilkinson and Eyre, a beautifully engineered piece of craftsmanship in the heart of this incredible institution, the Wellcome Trust, which is home to hundreds of different types of, I suppose, medical collections. They've got exhibitions here on the genome, on sleeping, on elements of the natural world, of ancient indigenous medical collections and medicinal systems, all housed in a phenomenal, um, vast collection documenting um, human civilization's progress in medicine and understanding of the human body. Uh, and I come here, I was, actually I was just using the library to sit down in and, and think about it, uh, but, but there were so many interesting books in the reading room, uh, particularly on the brain, on perception, on sight, and it really got me thinking again about how architecture is fundamentally a perceptual art, how it fundamentally exists in our mind first. And I was flicking for a book, and it was talking about how we learn to see space, and it had an experiment with two kittens placed inside a sort of spinning drum and this drum um, you know imagine you know those kind of things that they test air pilots in you know the centrifuge things something something like that so you had one kitten who was walking and the other cat was in a cradle and as the one cat who was walking around they would both spin around an axle point in the middle and there was kind of a black and white banding on the inside of the of the uh, of the barrel so can you imagine that it's quite quite confusing but but the idea was that this black and white banding, as the cat walked forwards, it began to develop a sensational um, experience of the black and white patination changing. As it moved forward, it kind of developed its visual system and understood that its movement correlated to the change in perception. The experiment was basically showing the cat that wasn't moving, it was in the cradle, but still had the same visual set, uh, stimuli, its vision didn't develop properly. So there's more than just visual cues going on when we learn to perceive space, is the short story to this. Um, and that it further illustrates the point that space is something that we learn to do. And fundamentally, we learn to do it through moving. And you'll see children when they're playing in the playgrounds, when they're running around, when they're colliding into things. Kids do not have a defined sense of space yet. They learn it, they learn through bumping into things, through making mistakes, through falling over. It is how we all end up exploring our spatial world, our environment. 
and culturally there are different ways that we learn to use space and within families, within uh, different professions even, and we start to see and use space and articulate it and communicate it and perceive it differently. So something to think about there, and for me architecturally it's fascinating, is that we are inherently learning to see space and when we enter into a building we are in an act of creation with the building instantaneously. It's not just sort of passive reception to sense of senses. We as human beings are creating the space as we inhabit it. The architecture of the media. Now this is quite fascinating. At the moment we've got all the kind of media war that's happening between President Trump and mainstream media outlets like CNN and BBC and all this kind of stuff and people flagging up the, and coined the buzzword alternative facts and there's an architecture to the media uh, and it doesn't matter what side of the story you're on whatever side of the story you are on there is a narrative that is being perpetuated and the the ideal that we are perpetuating truth or we're searching for truth is kind of interesting i mean every media outlet news source the bbc the cnn's everything has a function to keep you watching the news otherwise without that attention it would die so whether the truth is necessarily the priority is questionable and as human beings we build perspectives we have our own unique experiences in past and we fabricate a story we create we construct our stories of reality and we piece together facts to make that appear as if it was the truth to us. So there is an architecture that goes on in the media in constructing a narrative. And it's just interesting to be aware of it. Uh, interesting to see how it's at play. How does it happen in actually our built environment? Um, buildings are an interesting one because you have different stories told of different buildings. There was the using politics for an example when Michelle Obama, for example, which was, was talking about how slaves were used to construct the White House, and that cures a, a sort of furor and uh, it illustrated the divide in America. Um, some people were defending it, some people attacking it, and again, it's just it's factual. Um, but what does it mean? The meaning is comes from us. We end up, you know, there's always the what happened, and then there's the meaning that we, you know, the story that we give to it. And architecture is infinitely involved in this. Architecture in itself is inherently a meaningless art form. It's just space. It's just sort of physical things. But human beings bring meaning to it. We make a church what a church is. We make it transcendental. We bring the story to it. We construct the narrative to it. And the media can be used in that way as well to perpetuate narratives. So, I'm still in the Welcome Trust 
Museum. I've just been in a fantastic exhibition called Making Nature, which is examines how we as human beings look at and represent ideas about the natural world, in particular looking at nature documentaries, natural history museums, zoological exhibits, how we create and represent ideas about the natural world and what that means to us in terms of our relationship to our ecology and to our environment. Now we're living in a time where you know we have vast ecological problems and disasters occurring from the impact of industrialized meat production to CO2 emissions to you know the melting of polar ice caps etc etc there's a you know large amount of scientific data to suggest that our ecological balance and our relationship with the natural environment is out of whack and examining how we represent animals and look at the natural environment becomes quite fascinating particularly from a sort of scientific objective standpoint where we look at the natural world as being something to be observed to be examined to be analyzed um, it sometimes can see us removing ourselves from being part of that natural world um, there was a part in this exhibition that had some buildings in the London Zoo from some very prominent modernist British architects such as Berthold Lebeckin who famously did the spiral um, the spiral ramp at the penguin enclosure uh, I think it's Ralph Carson who did the elephant enclosure and of course Cedric Price who did the Avery House uh, at all at London Zoo and using these kind of prominent modernist architects to create these kind of pure beautiful simple architectural forms in which to house these kind of exotic animals what is that doing in terms of how we deeply are relating to these animals to these parts of nature I will suggest that on the one hand it's there is a level of connection there, there is a level of sort of beauty to it, um, but it becomes, there's a form of objectification that's also happening. It's certainly, and I want people to argue with this point because I'm still working it out myself, but, and, I've, and I, my sort of personal belief is one of, um, I, I really believe in a, a kind of ecological reverence for our natural environment. That is to cultivate a feeling of love like you would to to your mother because your mother sustains you to have that kind of love and reverie for our natural environment it's not something that we're disconnected from it's a teacher it's a mother it's something that houses us it's something that looks after us and whilst we're here we have an opportunity to establish that kind of relationship with it so when we start putting things into beautiful boxes, what are we doing? What are we actually saying? What are the implications of doing that? Is this something that we should put under scrutiny to try and understand and establish a more meaningful, purposeful um, relationship with our natural environment that will both sustain us as a civilization and as a species, as well as being beneficial to the co-inhabitants of this planet?